Michiel, was that your, um, was that a fingerprint scanner? There was a hand scanner for entering the data center. You always need a badge and a hand scanner before you can open the doors, uh, depending on your privilege, of course. Yeah. And all your, all your customers are uh, hand scanned? Every customer has it. Uh, every customer also has in individual uh, scenarios, so they can only access what they are allowed to. This is a, a data hall, and when we get inside, it becomes a little bit noisy, so... Hey, you're listening to Failed Architecture. My name's Charlie Clamos. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Minkin. Hey. And Rene Bohr. Hi. This is the first episode of Failed Architecture. Um, today, we're going to be uh, talking about data centers. Mark has the reins for this episode. But first, perhaps, Rene, you'd like to explain why we're talking in the first place, why we're hosting our podcast. Yeah, sure, Charlie. Yeah, so, I mean, we've been editing and writing on the Field Architecture website for like five, six or seven years now. And we thought it was time to try new forms of architecture criticism. And we thought that a podcast would allow us to, yeah, to go more in-depth and do more focused reflections on all kinds of architecture. But at the same time, we also feel that there's a kind of a, a dominance of the visual in architecture, which you can see in like the, the slick, hyper-realistic renderings or, or the ruin porn that we've discussed often at Field Architecture. And we feel that by delving into audio, we can maybe try to overcome this in some uh, kind of way. Kind of focus on human stories, uh, social justice, music, yeah, exactly. that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I'm kind of like referring to a few things that we're touching upon in the first few episodes mm -hmm. but yeah. video games yeah yeah and just trying to refocus the interest on you know the fact that architecture is a it's a narrative thing it's um, exactly. something that you yeah. kind of you 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 form in your head yeah, and, and it will it, try to i mean it will also force us to to talk about it and yeah. to describe it and to and to delve into this narrative more than yeah just be impressed by the by the visual visual power because i i mean i i think the thing that's quite often forgotten about with architecture is that it it, it continues to exist after the architects walked away from the building right you know yeah. and there's so many other people's stories that form that architecture afterwards. Buildings don't cease to exist after they've been built, of course, you know? Yeah. So if we take away the narrative from just the architect and open it up much more, then maybe more people can also have the feeling that they, they too have something to say uh, about architecture. Another great thing about having the podcast is that we get to enter a lot of different spaces, you know, and different people. Yeah. Good excuse to talk to different people, basically. And I think this is really, really a strong aspect of the first episode that we've got today. Um, maybe, Mark, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because the, the podcast for this episode specifically allowed us to get inside uh, a data center, a designer data center, basically. Um, it's a building that popped up in Amsterdam, I think about six months ago. It really drew our attention because it's a captivating building. It's a, it's a skyscraper for, for data, basically. It's windowless and it's taller than most buildings in the city. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, like it's in the middle of kind of a large sort of empty space. 
So it does kind of cut quite an impressive figure. I think. And it's next to the ring road, so everybody drives by. Yeah, you see it when you when you cycle by or you run by the, quite a distance already. Yeah, which is kind of like it goes against in a way what we think about when we exactly. think of the internet, right? It's yeah. it's like it's very definitively there. Whereas I guess we've kind of come to think of the cloud as a cloud, you know. Something so, very light yeah. and transparent. But uh, yeah, and here it is, like as a as a physical reality, like this hard drive, like in the middle of the city, basically. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like all the information and entertainment just uh, appears on your phone or on your smart devices. Out of nothing, right? Out of thin air, yeah. But it doesn't. There's this, this extremely heavy and intense infrastructure behind it that's that's actually keeping our digital society running. And I guess like suddenly it becomes not the realm of architects or technicians, but something that we have to delve into and work out, you know, what does this mean? It's a cultural artifact, basically. So that's also how we uh, approach it in this episode, because we'll be talking to an anthropologist and a journalist who have been researching data centers and and their impact on the world. Um, we'll also talk to the architect of this AM4 data tower. Who's that? In Amsterdam. Um, yeah, the firm that designed this building is um, Bentham Crowell Architects, which is a very famous firm here in the Netherlands. Um, people might know it from the central train stations of Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht, um, but also the Stedelijk Museum here in Amsterdam. And interestingly enough, they also did the redesign of Anne Frank's house. Fun fact. But what's interesting is that this data center is really being treated as design. It's being discussed in architectural media, but also mainstream media. So, And it's nominated for an architecture prize, I heard, yeah. right? It, it really is a kind of new direction for this form of architecture. Previously, it was something that was to be hidden away, protected, secured, um, something that really did stimulate this idea of the cloud being invisible. Exactly. Maybe maybe we can see this like design treatment of, of data centers as a, as a tipping point of, of data centers becoming more visible and more accepted in our in our in our landscape, in our cities as well. And that's also what we'll talk about in this episode that data centers are actually urbanizing, um, not only providing connectivity but also other other things to cities. Something else we'll talk about is the environmental impact, which is a big issue for the for the industries, so all conversations will go into that as well. Um, but maybe we should also just say a few words about what this building looks like, right? Because it's it's so it's so impressive, it's so in your face. Um, I mean, what was, what was your first impression when you saw it? From, from, I mean, I didn't look at any pictures before before seeing it, so it was actually quite a. I mean, genuinely a quite a sublime experience you know it, it, it's it's something that gave me a quite considerable sense of awe wow this is this is something that I haven't seen before um and you know in keeping with the sublime experience was quite quite a terrifying experience <laughs> in a way you know I mean wow this is like a big piece of technological um architecture but, you know but at the same time it's also quite mediocre in the sense that it's just like a blown up hard hard disk isn't it yeah, because yeah, that's like an obvious description or analogy that we could we could yeah. make, I guess, because it it does look very much like this Lassie external hard drive that was designed by Philip Stark. I don't know, ten years ago or fifteen years ago. Right. Yeah. 
um, and that's not something that the um, that the architect would would agree on. But it is. It kind of looks like that. Well, I, I kind of think, what would it look like if, you know, in, in 40 years time or 50 years time, you know, like, I mean, presume maybe it's just going to be knocked down, but like, it, it's a very, very solid structure, you know, and yeah, actually, it's, it's just as tall below ground as it is uh, above ground. Hmm. That's to make it to make it shockproof, basically, because of course, you don't want your surface to be um, wobbling about. Yeah. And the building, it actually costs 165 million to build, which is I think it's quite a lot for a building. Um, maybe I should say a little bit about the the optical illusion that yeah. the, that the facade gives off, as the architect explained it to me. The facade consists of all these vertical triangular stripes, which become more narrow towards the top, and that makes the tower look slimmer. And the building also seems to change color from black to silver, depending on the angle from from which you look at it. And because the uncolored aluminum reflects all the colors that the eye can grasp, it reflects the sky pretty neatly. So if you want to be poetic and look for symbolism in the design, you can, you can say that it, the building reveals the cloud. But let's not go there. <laughs> I mean, it is a very thoughtful structure, uh, you know, and I, th I think you could see from the speaking to the architect that he was, he was very proud of it. I mean, uh, I... I can understand why we kind of walked around this quite um, otherworldly space. It, it, it felt like something that you might see in a sci-fi yeah. film in a, in a spaceship. I'm thinking in particular about the, um, the kind of contrast between blue lights and black boxes, you know, and, and the way it, it really did evoke the inside of the Death Star in Star Wars or all the films that kind of copied that style, you know, and it, I don't, imagine that that was unintentional i think it was what i'd imagine a lot of developers going in there would think that wow this is cool you know and and there was a clear focus on appealing to the customer yeah well maybe we should introduce the boss of the data center who was kind enough to invite us in give us a tour and, and sit down to explain what's actually going on inside this this looming futuristic tower and how the data center business works yeah, let's let's do this thing. My name is Michiel Heilt. I'm the managing director of Equinix Benelux. And we are part of the largest uh, data center company in the world. Uh, we have, I think, at this moment around 190 data centers around the globe, mainly at location where data centers are actually the center of communication. So not so much the larger footprints where there's only uh, sheer data or, uh, or compute power, but we are actually connecting everything together. We are the locations where cables come together, customers come together and exchange information. Nevertheless, there's huge amount of data here, huge amount of compute, but the special thing, huge amount of exchange of information. It does sound a bit like the equivalent of the, of the Rotterdam Harbor, for example, the port, a, yes. a place where yeah. uh, things come in. In this case, digital connection comes in and then is transferred to the rest of the world again? Is that yes, how I the, can see the, it? The, the, the manifestation of a physical port where you ship in goods and ship out goods and exchange goods and some goods are actually remanufactured or, you know, repackaged. That is exactly what happens here. Uh, we actually take the information, you know, whether it's from the US or from Asia, it's being repackaged here, it's being repurposed here and it's being distributed. 
What is what is the product or service that you sell? Well, this, the, the basic product of a data center is actually very simple. It is actually the square meters uh, which you can rent. So, and that square meters that actually includes power uh, and of course cooling and the possibility to connect with fiber to other customers. So you can see it as a hotel for servers or computers. Yeah, and I think I've read that some well-known customers of yours are companies like Microsoft or Amazon. Yeah, all all the larger cloud players are our customers. So Amazon uh, Cloud is here, uh, uh, Microsoft Cloud, uh, Oracle Cloud, Google Cloud, and I can go on because they're all here. Why is this building like actually quite a couple of more of your data centers? I think there's AM seven and eight are already uh, being built. Why are these located in Amsterdam? Yes, for, for, for the us as, as Equinix, the, the most important thing is that our data center is being built up on the fiber infrastructure of the internet. So in Amsterdam, it really grew here at Science Park in 1992 when the internet started. That's when really the infrastructure started here and it, it only grew. So connectivity is all about uh, performance and performance can be measured in latency so you can imagine that you know if somebody's uh, on their smartphone and it takes too long they they swipe away so it's all about having the data on time at your smartphone but there are applications that are actually more strict for instance in london we have huge financial data centers where You have the uh, uh, exchange uh, engine and then banks and traders and information and everything around it in one data center. So everything outside the data center is too far. So low latency is business or even more simply, time is money. For exchange data centers like these, it's important that they're close to end users so that things load just about instantly on our devices. That's why we're seeing a sort of urbanization of these data centers, because they have to be where people and businesses are. In order to understand a little more about the worldwide spread of data centers in general, I contacted Ingrid Burrington. Hi. Hey. Ingrid is an artist and writer who works on explaining complex systems like the internet and how people live with them. Her artwork, but also her journalism for media like The Atlantic, are about getting people to think about the technologies that our society depends on. I asked her why data centers are located where they are in the world. So there are, there's sort of a, a convergence of a few different things that makes a place a good data center region. Uh, resources are, are actually probably the biggest one, like land, cheap power rates, uh, cheap water, because uh, cooling systems are really integral to keeping data centers running. And then another piece that is oh, temperature, like climate. And there's sort of a weird like meets like component to it. The places that have infrastructure become the places that have more infrastructure. So places in the U.S. where where railroad lines run become places where fiber routes run, become places where people put data centers because the data centers want to be able to very quickly connect themselves to existing fiber routes because they don't want to build new ones. Another factor beyond sort of literal sort of landscape and climate um, is more of a of a political decisions about who's going to give you a good deal to build the data center. So um, companies will get certain kind of tax incentives to construct. I know um, that Ireland set these really, really uh, advantageous tax schemes up for tech companies to build there. And that's also like, it's, it's actually a pretty good place to put data centers because 
it's pretty like cool and like kind of like foggy and stuff. Um, and it's close enough to all of these other major kind of communication hubs places like the UK. And then there are different kinds of tasks that different places become suited towards. So Facebook has a data center in Lulia, Sweden, which is like kind of in the Arctic Circle. That data center is specifically used uh, for what's called like literally called cold storage. So when you're when you're scrolling through Facebook, going through photos and you go far enough back in time, like you don't really need that. You don't really need a photo from like 2011 or whatever to be immediately available. So to pull that particular image that's rarely called upon because who's looking at photos from 2011, it's convenient to store them in a place that doesn't need to get used a lot. It's easier to have this stuff stored somewhere kind of far away that's really easy to control the climate because it's already freezing because you're in Sweden. Um, (laughs) A lot of the way that cloud computing actually works is that things will be distributed across many data centers at any given time and that it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily live in one place. So like when Amazon Web Services has a data center region, like what that means is they have many data centers across a sort of small territory and your data could be in any one of those at any given time. Let's introduce Alex Taylor, who is a social anthropologist at the University of Cambridge. Alex's research is about the codes and customs of the data center industry. The data centers where I conducted field work, I would basically describe them as hives of social activity. They were full of people coming and going on a daily basis, and they were staffed 24-7 as well. So I was sort of treating, I guess, data center professionals as you would treat what we used to call a tribe. I mean, they've got their own language and everything like this. I mean, it was so... uh, I find it very difficult to actually sort of begin to even understand what the cloud was or how data centers really work, just because it, the sort of jargon was so acronym heavy that I had to just uh, I had to just get familiar with this vocabulary at first. So I, I started off by going on a um, a, a training program, a week long training sort of data center management program. So I actually got a qualification. I became a qualified data center management professional, a CDCMP, another acronym. So. Um, yeah, so that was a really useful starting point for me for getting sort of familiar with, I guess, the coordinates of the field site itself. So if I think I think you could say that architecture is a, um, is a physical manifestation of its time. So as totems of our time, what do data centers tell us about today's culture? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, as totems of our time, I think these buildings, especially their sort of proliferation, this this sort of ongoing expanse of data centers, which we're sort of all complicit in. Well, these buildings say something about the data saturation of digital culture and consequently reflect our sort of own gluttonous or you can eat usage and consumption of data. It has this sort of massive environmental problem and obviously the... Um, this sort of green rhetoric that so many companies, you're like probably everyone's bank these days, encourages people to go green or to like um, uh, to use online communication rather than snail mail or paper based communication, because obviously paper is like killing trees and all these things. But at the same time, the uh, this sort of erases the uh, the environmental devastation that the, the data center industry or the cloud itself is causing. And so you've got this idea that somehow using it on online internet services are actually sort of carbon free in a way when really they're not. And in fact, they could potentially be worse. I'm really looking at the yeah, very, the very physical side of the, uh, of the cloud, which sort of is in, in direct contrast to this very, I don't know, immaterial, non-physical imaginary that the metaphor seems to sort of uh, conjure. 
it's so versatile it can mean so many different things and it's got so many sort of weird um sort of layers and overtones and connotations to it that you can play with and use for so many different ways so it's yeah that's something i've enjoyed yeah so my next very simple but enormous question is what is the cloud yeah i've, I've been asked this a lot of uh times and it's a, it's a question i can never actually properly answer um <laughs> basically uh i mean during my field work i found that depending on who you ask you'll get a very different definition of the cloud it seems that nobody has i mean everyone's got their own definitions but there is no collective agreement as to what the cloud is or anything like that so i mean for me the cloud's lots of things it's a a metaphor an infrastructure um, an imagination, a lifestyle, um, a technology. It's, it's, it's sort of um, a recipe that's composed of all these different parts of things. How do I see the cloud? <laughs> um. Ingrid Berenton says that we shouldn't be fooled by this image of a soft and feather-like cloud. How do I think about the cloud? I think that it's a, um, a convenient metaphor for making uh, the heavy and industrial seem light and ineffable and manageable. I mean, on a technical level, completely understand cloud computing as a thing and a concept, but I think that the premise of the cloud as, as something seemingly effortless is a bit of a, of a risky position to take because it means that one loses, the, loses sight of so much energy and labor and just kind of like transformation to space that I think is, is a really interesting aspect of living in a networked world. There is a tendency for tech to be deemed sort of placeless in a way that I think is is to our detriment of our understanding of what it is to live with it because, you know, humans live in the world. <laughs> so so seeing it as 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 part of a landscape is, I think, a useful kind of lens through which to look at it. Let's go back to that landscape then and take a look at the hardware of this building. I asked the director of Equinix what is needed from a building to be a good data center. As a data center company, we look at the technical because, you know, you need power, you need um, cooling, uh, you need people, uh, you need to be able to service it. It needs to be environmentally friendly. Customers are using a lot of uh, electricity. So what we try to do is minimize our footprint and really make it so as friendly as possible because we invest in these data centers for 20 years or more. So we want to make sure that it's state of the art. Uh, that is kind of what our expectations are, at the, you know, at the first uh, place. The second thing is, of course, when you want to build at uh, areas like this where there's a lot of infrastructure, and then I mean uh, fiber infrastructure where we like to sit, you have to adapt to the requirements of, uh, in this case, of the university. We had to buy the terrain from them. And they said, well, it's very important that the, the university is an open area where people come and have education or research, etc. So it should actually blend into the uh, environment. Our normal data centers have fences where it really blocks out people and is really shielded from the outside. And this should be much more of an open uh, data center, which for us is very hard because data centers are, are closed. So what does this mean architecturally? My name is Joost Vos. I'm an architect and partner at Bentham Kral Architects. I asked the architect of the data tower how we tried to make the building open and secure at the same time. Uh, when we came in uh, the building, we were walking on a bridge, going over a moat. And that is actually the first uh, security layer we uh, laid around the building. We, there are several layers in this building. And the first one is the moat uh, and the bridge. Uh, then you enter the, the huge entrance lobby. 
further in this building, then uh, eventually you are in, in this customer area. And we connected this area with the two data center buildings via two bridges. And that's an extra security layer uh, being built in. The security bridge between the entrance building and the data tower is an outspoken rite of passage. It's basically a floating tunnel with a bright red interior. Through its windows, you can see the slick tower rising in front of you. We were escorted towards it, and finally, into data space. Michiel, was that your, um, was that a fingerprint scanner? It was a hand scanner for entering the data center. You always need a badge and a hand scanner before you can open the doors, uh, depending on your privilege, of course. And all your, all your customers are uh, hand scanned? Every customer has it. Uh, every customer also has in individual uh, scenarios. So they can only access what they are allowed to. This is a, a data hall. And when we get inside, it becomes a little bit noisy. So. Those are the cooling machines, and you already feel it's hot here. And the cooling machines are actually cooling all the air uh, that's coming from all the servers. Incredible. This, this is just one floor, right? Of course, one of the reasons to do a podcast about data centers was to have an excuse to get inside one. And here we are. The data tower consists of large open floors totaling 24,000 square meters of surface space, called white space in jargon. Entering one of these futuristic spaces, you see white floors and ceilings with bright red and yellow cable trays running overhead and big black boxes lining the pathways. These boxes are the cooling machines behind which the server rooms are situated. Listening to this, you can almost feel the amount of energy powering this building, right? It can't be a surprise then that energy use is one of the major issues for the data center industry, also for Equinix. We wanted also to make a flagship data center, and it should be more innovative than a normal data center. One of the interesting things is that we started to exchange heat uh, through our underground wells with the university so they could use the warmth that is produced by the data center and they could heat their own buildings in winter. The building can be much more than only just providing internet uh, to the community. It can also provide warmth uh, in winter to the community. Sounds like a win-win, doesn't it? If data centers are indeed urbanizing, they could potentially play a central role in a city's circular energy system. So is this excess heat already being used on a serious scale? Well, in the Netherlands, it's of course interesting that we have a gas infrastructure. So every household and every building is, is, is on gas. And probably you're aware that the uh, government has said, you know, we, we should really get rid of the gas because the gas is finished and we cannot use it anymore. And then really the most reliable uh, sources of heat are really next door. They're the data centers. So the, the data center industry has said uh, all the heat that is being generated by the data center is actually for free. So... Uh, you can pick it up and uh, the uh, Amsterdam municipality is actually very interested in putting uh, uh, heat nets in place where you can transport heat from data centers, but not too long a distance, so it should be close. 
and really reuse that in households. You can imagine that data centers like these can uh, fuel ten thousands of households for for heat in winter. But on the other hand, I also heard that the the power use of this building is is similar to that of an average Dutch city. It does, it does, it is. Yes, the the power consumption, the sheer power consumption of of, of buildings like these is is, is enormous, and uh, it's necessary because in every product we consume, in all the things we do, there's always a, a digital bit. So even in dull products nowadays, you know, you pay digital, so the payment is digital, or you know, even tiny things are becoming digital nowadays. And we all want it. We all want that convenience, and we all optimize, for instance, our travel. When we use uh, applications like Uber, and but the downside is you have to process it somewhere, and that's being done in our data center, and that's pure energy, uh, electricity we use in the data center. He's got a point there, at least in simple economic terms of supply and demand. The constant connectivity that we want comes at a cost. You and I want to stream high-quality video and music on our phones at any time and receive notifications around the clock or listen to podcasts for that matter. The reason your smartphone is so small and you don't have to charge it every 15 minutes is because most of the storage and processing is outsourced to cloud infrastructure, which costs a lot of energy to run. Ashton, a British charity that promotes sustainable energy, calculated that the energy it costs to watch an HD video from YouTube on your phone for only 45 seconds could keep an LED light bulb lit for an hour. In light of this, I asked Michiel where his data center's energy comes from. Well, the power, we, we buy power in the Netherlands. We buy green power uh, with, with a supplier. Um, but that's also one of the challenges, I think, for the Dutch society, that there's a bigger demand in green power. So that is, that's challenging. But that's not up to us. It's up to our suppliers. Hmm. Yeah. I've also heard uh, people suggest that you know, because data centers consume so much energy that these data center providers that they should also invest in building wind farms. I we do, huh? we do in uh, in uh, in our uh, uh, in the US. We uh, invested a very large amount, some amount for ten years uh, in wind farms. So we buy from wind farms in the US. Uh, we we try to do the same in the Netherlands, but it's not available. You cannot buy it. So that is that that stuff. Uh, but as soon as there are availability of, of enough wind in the Netherlands, we'll, uh, we'll do that as well. So, okay. Heat nets for excess warmth and green energy supply are really for others to take care of. I was curious to hear what Ingrid Burrington thinks of the sustainability stories told by data center companies. Data center people love to tell you about how efficient their data centers are. <laughs> like their ability to get their energy costs like super minutely, precisely down and use use things as efficiently as possible is is like this really really big deal um partly because you know energy is literally money but also like there's a good sort of green pr aspect to it a lot of the the big platform companies their approach to kind of addressing their their carbon footprint or their electricity usage has been to, to enter into these things called power purchase agreements, which are basically uh, contracts made with local utility companies to pay for the construction of renewable energy resources that are roughly going to equate to the amount of power that the data center is likely to use in a year. And in exchange for covering those costs, the company gets a fixed 
rate for how much money they pay for their power usage annually for like a five-year period or something like that. And so it's really economically beneficial to the companies because it's a lot easier to kind of make long-term forecasting plans when you have a low fixed rate for your power costs. It's kind of good for the utility companies because they get the addition of this new piece to the grid and it, you know, expands their green energy portfolio. Whether or not it actually means that their carbon footprint is so-called canceled out, I'm always like a little bit skeptical of because it's not as though like they just plug in the Google data center to a wind turbine and that's that and you can draw a direct line. Electricity is always kind of coming from many different sources. It's probably a little bit of the wind and a little bit of coal based or a little bit of hydro and it, it all kind of like when it gets in the mix, it's not as easy to delineate. But it's sort of the best compromise for trying to to create some sort of offset for, for the data center's energy use and impact. Are all data centers companies so concerned about sustainability? Mm, oh, absolutely not. Um, like, you got to kind of already be pretty powerful and have a lot of money to be basically buying wind farms for your data centers. And you have to have like kind of a public interest kind of concern. So like a lot of that investment really started with Greenpeace calling out big platforms in 2012 for building their data centers in, you know, places that had primarily kind of coal based grids and giving them a lot of, a lot of flack for not really thinking about the way that their location in a site would kind of lead to the burning of more fossil fuels. And so for smaller companies who don't necessarily have like one, don't have enough money to justify doing that. And two, like, don't have a high enough profile for it to matter. They're just kind of doing their thing. And some companies, I mean, there are smaller companies that have been able to kind of put pressure on municipalities. Um, there's in the United States, one example is a Switch, which is like a co-location services data center company, got the state of Nevada to do a lot of investment into more renewable energy sources that led to other companies building data centers in the state. So like Apple has a big data center they're building in Nevada. For the most part, though, like any of the investment in sort of renewable energy stuff within the data center industry is mostly being driven by the big platforms who have kind of their own motives for doing it. And like maybe it benefits more people in the end. I've had I had a, a friend who was arguing with me that that I shouldn't be so so cynical about these investments because in some ways you know Google and Amazon are are basically giving giving the green power grid a head start. But I, I yeah, they're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. <laughs> You've also visited many data centers. I mean, yeah, you got inside uh, quite a few. I think. What are they generally like? So I've gotten into data centers primarily through the cover of journalism. In general, getting inside data centers means you're getting inside a data center on a company's terms. You're, you're seeing what they want you to see, and they're telling you a story that they want you to tell about them. So a lot of it has honestly felt a bit like smoke and mirrors. In some ways, it's, it's interesting to look at sort of technically like, here's what we're doing with our racks. Here's how... We manage our cooling systems, but there is something also just sort of about the kind of image that a company likes to project about itself via its data centers. Visiting a Facebook data center in Iowa was probably the most surreal of any of the data centers I've ever visited because they have no good reason to let people in 
they don't they don't rent they don't need to they don't need to drum up good press to get other people to use their data centers they're just kind of using them as sort of these kind of bizarre pr objects and it seemed like they really wanted the story they really wanted me to tell was how open they were and how much how much they shared and how much sharing they facilitated so and also and how how significant this this infrastructural work was relative to this like long timeline of history like they took us down this corridor that had this sort of like timeline of different moments in the histories of human communications and it starts with like this handprint on a cave wall and like you know drawings the like Lascaux paintings or whatever and you know it goes and like the invention of like paper and the printing press and the radio and it keeps going and the last thing in the timeline is literally a Facebook like. Like there's a weird way in which the way that they were telling the history of communications was like, and it all comes down to finally reaching the perfect form of human communication. In some ways, I think this is part of the like showing off of their data centers is it's like, not only do we have this, you know, kind of fuzzy social infrastructure mandate, we also have all these beautiful buildings and they're really nicely designed and they have murals and a video games room, and they're really efficient, and everyone who works here is really nice. I think that the the shift toward more visible network infrastructure has been one that's been kind of happening. And in some ways, it's it's I think it's kind of a strategic recognition that trying to hide these things just kind of is is nonsensical. And two, that that there is maybe a recognition of the ways in which these, these like a, a willingness to kind of leverage them as sort of like, I kind of want to say marketing assets. Um, like there's sort of the fetishizing of the data center. First is this sort of like unknowable like box that that is like hidden um, as a sort of mystery to be solved. That was a narrative that companies couldn't really control. <laughs> And so when they kind of step in and are like, no, 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 we're going to let you look at our data centers and we're going to make them really beautiful and we're going to get, you know, famous architects to work on them. Like there's also like the lure of the data center to a to like famous architects, I imagine, is partly driven by that sense of like, ah, the whole the, the architecture, but for machines, not for humans. Like it's quite it's quite poetic. No, it's very poetic. And it also reminded us of Karl Lagerfeld's 2016 fashion show for Chanel, for which the catwalk was turned into a white space, with models walking through server racks fully equipped with cables and flickering lights. Uh, you know, I do collections for today. I don't do collections for yesterday. In the 80s and the 70s, I remember, thank you very much. That was Karl, with some sound from his fashion show. I also asked Alex, the social anthropologist, about the image of data centers in popular media. I mean, I would say that um, these images of facilities that you see released by data centers tend to offer very little meaningful insights into the realities of data storage practices. You get these sort of, um, I guess you call them like sort of glossy close-ups of wires and pipes and servers, but these sort of bits of infrastructure are completely sort of decontextualized. And also another thing that's um, that's frequently missing is the people. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the Chanel show is how some of the models were also dressed up as robots. And um, I think this plays into this bigger cultural fantasy of these buildings as robotic automated spaces. The guys that I was working with, the, um, the CEO of one of the data centers I worked with was actually, he hired a photographer on a debt once to um, come and photograph the facility because he just because the images needed to be updated, he felt, for the brochures and stuff like that. And um, 
he said that basically I, I was allowed to sort of shadow this photographer as we walked around and we had to sort of interrupt maintenance workers or plumbers in the corridors trying to fix these sort of pipes um, and get them to step out of the shot because we needed these these photos of the data center and the photographer said that people ruin the shots because you've got this idea of sort of science fictional space or a very sort of um futuristic space and having some bloke there with his beer belly fixing a sort of server <laughs> doesn't really fit in with that image of a cutting edge futuristic space i was told that the less human you can make these spaces appear the sort of more secure they look because the number one cause of downtime is always human error they say if you've got this image of a cloud it sort of seems sort of i don't know unbreakable in a way clouds are just sort of these formless things that drift across the world and there's no um yeah, there's no sort of real fragility or breakability there. But suddenly, if you start thinking of these things as physical, they suddenly start, so the, the possibility of fragility arises. I also wanted to hear from Equinics how they protect the fragile elements of the cloud. The world today demands constant connectivity and, and data storage. So I can imagine that you do everything you can to minimize the possibility of, of downtime, of data loss, of system failure. Could you explain uh, how you do that? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, the, the two most important things is, is, is uh, electricity and cooling. Uh, and we provide full backup of, uh, of every system uh, by, our, by ourselves. So we procure uh, electricity from the public uh, grid, but we have a full backup here. So if the grid fails, and it actually did fail a couple of years ago, we can fully generate enough power to, to run infinitely uh, by ourselves. The same is for cooling, uh, although we don't infinitely. have a backup. Hmm? Infinitely. As long as there is enough uh, diesel, we can get on time here. But we have contracts where we can supply our own, uh, have our own supply of diesel. On cooling, it's different because there's no grid we can get cooling from. So we have backup systems for everything. We call it M plus one concept. So if we have one thing, we always have a next thing. That's how we build everything. Everything in this building is redundant. And the third thing is fiber. Without fiber, it doesn't really make sense to have an exchange like this. So if you look at this building, there are four data entries for fiber. So if one fiber line is cut, there's always another fiber line. And most customers are actually using the data center here and are backing it up with other data centers. So is that... I think that's the, um, a term that I recently read about, an IT term called failover. Is that what it is? Yes, failover is the ability that if one system fails, you can actually uh, keep the service running uh, with another system. And nowadays, uh, if you look at clouds, clouds are very good in failover. So uh, you used to be able to you know, switch one system down and switch one system up, but that took hours. Uh, if you have a cloud architecture, you can do that on the fly. So you can really seamlessly migrate the servers over a cloud, physical cloud in two buildings, from one cloud to another building. And that is uh, that's very sophisticated software. So if the shit really hits the fan and this, this building goes up in flames, then you can switch over to... Uh like a backup. Yes, we have eight data centers in, in Amsterdam. So there are enough, there are seven other backups uh, where customers are. Uh, it does work. Uh, I don't want to test it though. <laughs> so it means that there is a complete backup of what's there's inside a, this building. Yeah, there's, there, there's a full uh, redundant system in other buildings. Yes. Basically, if everything, uh, after a few hours, everything should be back to normal. And how often does this happen? It never happens. 
No, it never happens. We have, of course, single customers that go down sometimes and that they have software problems. Most customers by now are putting more money in, in, in to providing that similar service. Take uh, a simple thing as nowadays lighting. There's, you know, even you have smart lightning. If your service, if your uh, internet service on lightning fails, you know, you, you, your light is on all the time. You cannot switch it off. So you really want uh, uh, services to be uh, present always and uh, everywhere. Yeah, but then still there's a lot of just-in-case space. We, we invest a lot of money in that in case of things go bad that you know we we always practice every month we tra- practice every month we train and it never happens but still we do that because if it happens you need to be ready so yeah there's a lot of i would say almost wasted money in in in, in that exercise but i think it is the guarantee it's like an insurance you you need to have that that in case something bad happens you need to be up and running um Online, I've seen examples of, of floating and underwater and underground data centers, which are currently being built or prototyped. True. Do you expect to build anything like that in the near future? No, it's it's, it's interesting what uh, what is happening, and, and everybody's experimenting. I think putting things in underwater or or in other things is is at for us at this moment not very realistic. For instance. I know that people are putting it in mountains in Norway, which is great because you have, you know, green energy and you can have uh, free cooling uh, of the mountain. But you have we need the connectivity here in Amsterdam. So for us, it doesn't make sense. You can think about data center expressions that are different than ours. But I would consider those more of niche players, which which have those kind of applications and those kind of experiments. Then... What do you see as the most spectacular scenario that could actually take place in the in the next 10 years or so? Well, I, I don't think we have to wait 10 years. I think I think the most spectacular thing is actually right now. We are as a world, you know, if you really take it from you know 10 miles high, we are actually building compute platforms which are everywhere and for everybody and, and always on. The platform is already there, is already being built. I think this compute form is actually also the the sole reason why uh, uh, autonomous cars will happen, why uh, healthcare will happen, why security will happen. You know, uh, we all want those kind of things, and the, those platforms that are being built right now nowadays are are actually the basis for all those future developments. And I think that the typology which we have now around the world, um, where you have main hubs, like Amsterdam is one of the, I would say, the 10 largest hubs in the world, they are becoming bigger. So the, the, the bigger hubs are becoming bigger and more important. Uh, uh, you have the compute centers, which are at this moment outside of the cities. Uh, they might become part of the cities because that energy can be reused in cities later on. So that is one thing. Interesting enough, if you look at uh, many of our large customers like Google and Microsoft, they have huge data center campuses outside of the cities in rural areas. The question there is, where can you really recycle, for instance, the energy? So maybe it's a wrong choice. I don't know. I mean, it's a cheap choice for sure. The only thing what sometimes puzzles me is the size of the data centers. You know, if, if we as humanity... Uh, keep consuming everything and, 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 and doing everything, the sheer size of the data centers can be, you can easily imagine that it has to uh, be five or tenfold of what we have right now. And the 
the question is, do we have place for that? And how do we do that? So the sheer size is, I would say, the biggest puzzle. But at the same time, uh, also technological advancements probably make it easier to store uh, more data in less and less. Uh, yes, we're very happy that, that, that you know, the storage is advancing, compute computers advancing. But uh, the interesting thing is that it was researched, and, and I think by IBM, that every new year we produce as, you know, as a world the same amount of data as all the years before. And that's because, you know, we go to uh, higher resolution video. We use uh, artificial intelligence. So the amount of data that we are consuming uh, is, 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 is so big that more efficient storage is only helping a little bit. And that's why we keep building and we are already busy with the new, um, the new projects which are much larger than this project for, for, for the coming decade. So that is, uh, that is the biggest concern. Can we keep up with the demand and how did, will that develop? You know, if you build a building with the size of two times AM4, how does it look like? That is just, yeah, that's hard to imagine. Yeah, I, I do agree with that from everyone I've spoken to as well. At the moment, at least, we are producing data faster than we can store data. So there's this This is why all these sort of developments to try and come up with some sort of, it's like these ideas of an eternal data storage medium that are small and durable, like the holy grail, and they're all in the developmental stages at the moment. So there's no there's no way these are going to become um, sort of industri sort of industry deployed anytime sort of within the next, I don't know, 20 years probably. So... At least for the yeah for that amount of at least for the next twenty years or something, I can't imagine there's going to be a huge shift. But after that, do you think that data centers as we know them now will they become obsolete at some point? I definitely think so. I think we're already kind of seeing this with processes like virtualization and also with the development of modular data centers, like the deployment of data centers in containers that can easily be moved and sort of deployed in sort of big scale or small scale operations. So I think the data center as a sort of, I guess you would call it big warehouse or industrial scale sort of architecture will pretty much become a thing of the past in the not too distant future. Also with the development of new data storage technologies, like, I mean, there's so many sort of experiments going on at the moment. I actually did a lot of work with some guys in the University of Southampton who have developed eternal, an eternal supposedly data storage solution on glass quartz so you can store huge amounts of data in on like a sort of thumbnail sized sort of glass stone and also ibm are doing things with like um, dna storage or uh, liquid data storage so there's all these new data storage developments that are taking place which again will potentially threaten the the data center as a hard drive storing facility but um i guess one big difference between the old telecommunications architectures and purpose-built data centers, which are known as greenfield data centers, I would say is that these these buildings, these new data centers don't seem built to last in the same way that the sort of concrete megaliths of the late, late 19th century and early 20th century did. Rather than become abandoned buildings to be retrofitted as data centers um, for the next sort of telco revolution, I think data centers will be dismantled rather than become derelict. It's almost as if the industry itself is aware of its sort of impending obsolescence. The rise and fall of the data center. What does the architect think about this? So what if, because of rapid technological advancements, data centers become obsolete in, in 10 or 20 years time from now? Will this building become some sort of modern ruin? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um we will need these buildings for years. Um, this building 
it has some flexibility in it itself. Um, there's a lot of uh, heavy structure in this building to be able to carry the loads. Uh, it has quite a, f a large free height, so you can easily take off the facade, uh, add extra floors in it, and then change it into a laboratory or even housing. So this will never be a ruin. No. Uh, and that's also think one of the tasks uh, for an architect uh, that this is a dedicated building designed to be a data center but in the future i think this building can have a second life with another function in it personally aren't you tired of uh, of the digital yet of being on screens all the time and being connected all the time um, you mean as an end user, of course. It's interesting how... Oh, as a person. As a person, yeah. As a person, I must say, uh, I'm using it less than I used to do, but um, I still see that we're using more and more intelligence. I'm using more and more intelligence. So I let myself be advised nowadays more by the traffic advice when I wake up. So I use it less. So I'm, I'm, I'm not so much of a user that, you know, tries to look at Facebook every five minutes because I don't, I'm not so interested in that. But the artificial intelligence part, that is really convenient for me. And that, that's what I like. So it doesn't necessarily improve the, the quality of life. I think it's how you use it yourself. And, and, and if you make the right choices, it can. But you can also make the wrong choices. And then it's not very helpful. So what would you, what would you advise children on how to use their screens? Well, uh, I have children. So <laughs> as a parent, it's always hard. But I think, first of all, you have to learn children to cope with it themselves. Because they will be in a world where everything is available always. I think you can forbid children to use their mobile phones or their playstations or whatever. But I think uh, what we like to teach them is that they, and that is, doesn't always work, I'm, I'm honest, that they can use it themselves when they want to, that they're free of, you know, that they're not addicted to that screen or to those things. And that's sometimes hard nowadays. So it's really a mentality change that has to happen. And well, I'm trying to do that with my own family, like a lot of other people, because our children will be living in an environment where everything is available all the time. And I hope they make the right choices. So this was our first exploration into data space. And of course, there's much more to discover, but what are your main takeaways for now, Charlie, Rene? Yeah, for me, what was really amazing is to, to experience the internet. Like for me, until now, it has been quite an abstract notion. And yeah, suddenly you can feel it and hear it and see it. I mean, you walk around among these servers and I mean, you see, the service of Uber, of Instagram, um, all these services that you and other people might use on a daily basis. And suddenly it's not that cloud anymore. It has this, this physical existence uh, that also has um, um, yeah, this incredible energy consumption. That, that's the thing I keep thinking about when talking about data centers is just how little anybody really speaks about the physical, environmental, and I mean, technological changes that are being brought about very rapidly by these these um, data centers uh, sometimes it gets talked about too much it doesn't get talked about enough really um, the looming environmental catastrophe and this is this is a major source of e 
energy consumption uh, going forward it's only expanding yeah. and people don't really don't really realize it you know it it it's, feels like a very uh, clean transaction between you and your phone absolutely and i mean i think this podcast goes some of the way and i think you know it's to your credit mark that yeah. this is this has been discussed with with a really nice balance between people who are involved and people who are critical of 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 it you know if we, if we look forward if we try to extrapolate this thing into the future i mean our our data consumption is only expected to increase exponentially so how are we going to deal with this um how are we going to really manage to to minimize the environmental toll of these buildings yeah well one one interesting way is that we're, we moved the entire field architecture website to uh, Greenhost, which is uh, a hosting provider that's based in the Netherlands that fully runs on renewable energy, but is also working on all kinds of privacy issues and is the only hoster in the Netherlands that doesn't log email conversations, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And they're also actively promoting freedom of press. Yeah. So um, I think I would also really like to promote Greenhost. I mean, they're not, they're not paying us to say this. I no, think they, I just, mean, it's uh, genuinely like a really important thing to going forward. It's, it's something that really needs to be um, brought to people's attention. You know, yeah. it's such an important issue. Yeah, and exactly. and th th it's really great that they're, they're, they're around and that we've, we've gone for them, I think, is um, it's a start. Yeah. And then the, the data center industries is also evolving, is also innovating, of course. So I'm really curious to see what will happen if, if data centers will become an integral part of our cities or if they will just cease to exist as we know them right now in the near future. I think that's for another Field Architecture episode. If we uh, have time, we've got a lot of other things to cover. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should um, tell our listeners that if, if they like us, they can also uh, support us, right? Yeah. Support for Field Architecture comes from our subscribers. If you like this episode, then go to our website, find the support link it's easy it's in yellow and um if you like this give us a bit of money we can continue yeah finally i'd like to say thanks to a few people of course to ingrid alex michiel and Joost for for being our guests on this show and for um inviting us into data space also thank you to natalia dominguez rangel for making the original music And thank you to Gijs and Tim for letting me record in their studio and bedroom, respectively. And a final thanks goes to the Creative Industries Fund, the Netherlands, for helping us set up this podcast. <laughs>